Hello everybody, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday night, April 28th, 2015, and I am coming to you from my home here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. I'm here tonight, as always, with the Daily Evolver producer, Brett Walker. How you doing tonight, Brett? Hey, pretty good. Good. Thanks. Yeah. So tonight, uh, we wanted to take a look at what is a breaking story, one that has caught the attention of all of the media, at least here in the U.S., in the the attention of of the country, really. And that is the uh, unrest and violence in the city of Baltimore, which is about 50 miles from Washington, D.C. And I'll get to that in a minute, but before I do... I just want to thank you, as always, for listening and for following us to our new home here on Integral Radio, which is a new feature of Integral Life, which is the leading internet hub for the worldwide Integral community, as well as the home base for Ken Wilbur and his latest works. You can also find more of my writing and blogs and podcasts and interviews on my personal website, dailyevolver.com, where I post everything that captures my and Brett's fancy. I would also encourage those of you who are interested in the integral aspects of what we talk about tonight, because, you know, that's what we're doing here is really looking at current events through the lens of integral theory and looking at integral theory through the lens of current events. And for those of you who are into that sort of thing, uh, check out the a couple charts that I have. First of all, under the theory tab at the top of the dailyevolver.com website, but also Brett, you're gonna post those on the chat window in Integral Radio here right quick, right? Yep, I'll do that right now. Yeah, cool. And also, uh, I, I do love hearing comments and questions and feedback. So if you're interested in that, please contact me. Well, first of all, uh, on the live chat and and Brett will be monitoring that through the show. And you can also email me at jeff at dailyevolver.com. Or when you go to the site, uh, the, the website, there's a little orange button on the right that you can press and that is a voicemail system that you can leave me a voicemail and you know i often get back to you and if not uh, i sometimes play it on the show and actually have a couple that we may play tonight uh, if we have time so let's take a look at this uh, uprising in baltimore and just take a moment to feel in to the situation in basically a non-local way. Uh, One of the insights of integral theory is that we are living in a soup where we have a subtle body or energetic connection to other people that is independent of certainly space, but perhaps also time, Uh, but that we can connect in our bodies with things that are happening in the world. And just to bring you up to date, if you're not as tuned in as you might be, this is the story of a 25-year-old black man, Freddie Gray, who was arrested a couple weeks ago. And somewhere between his arrest and his ride in the police van to what started out to be to the police station, but it ended up a ride to the hospital. His spinal cord was 80% severed at the neck. There were three fractured vertebrae and a ruptured larynx. In other words, on the way to the hospital, something or someone snapped his neck. And he died a week later in the hospital. And there's a a great reaction to this in the country, and it's a cumulative reaction. Uh, In the last 
couple of years, we've seen a lot of this. Uh, police brutality. The Michael Brown situation in Ferguson, Missouri. The Eric Gardner in New York. Walter Scott in North Carolina, the man who was shot in the back as he was running away from the policeman. Policeman in that case was charged with murder. And in response, there have been, well, at least a week of peaceful demonstrations in Baltimore that yesterday turned into violence and rioting. And that lasted for about 24 hours. It seems to be under control now. We'll see how it goes tonight, but the place is well fortified tonight. Last night, the criticism is that the authorities were late in getting to, um, you know, responding to the situation. But we'll take a look at that, actually. But just to put the riots in context, last night's riots, as I said, lasted about 24 hours. There were no fatalities in the civilian side. There were 15 police officers hurt, one still in the hospital, 150-something arrests so far, and the setting of fire to about 15 buildings. And we can compare this to the Baltimore riots that happened in 1968. And this is after Martin Luther King was assassinated and those riots lasted a week. There were six dead, 700 injuries, 6,000 people arrested, and 300 fires set. So last night and yesterday's violence is about, you know, roughly 10% of what it was in 1968. And it's difficult to make value judgments about the quantity of violence. Because, of course, the people whose businesses were burned down and looted and the police officer who is in the hospital, that was a very, very bad night, a complete total loss for you know, at least the property owners. That's not to be minimized in any way. But we do want to look at you know, trends and context in these situations. Of course, the headlines last night were, Baltimore is burning. Well, 15 buildings in Baltimore, a city of many thousands of buildings, doesn't constitute the city burning. But that was indeed the headline on, this is a rare event, actually. It was the same headline on Huffington Post, Fox News, and CNN. CNN's version was actually Baltimore inflamed. So, you know, it's an interesting thing, what we would call maybe sensationalism of the media, but I actually think it's more than that. I think it's actually a, uh, a marker for the development of the pacification of our culture. Because we see, actually, dramatically, whether it's ISIS or, in this case, the violence in Baltimore, that less violence gets more and more attention in our more and more peaceful and pacified world. And it, it's just a function of how we're built, particularly in the first tier memes. And when I talk about the first tier memes, it's, if you're looking at the levels of development chart, it's the first six stages of cultural development and consciousness development in individuals. And these structures, and I think maybe it's just maybe built into human nature in general, we're tuned to danger. We have a negativity bias, psychologists say, where we are hypervigilant for anything that might go wrong. And just to, you know, sort of whip things up with as much drama as we can. And, it, and I think about the ways that we talk to each other and the way that we tell our stories. And storytelling is about drama. And we want to seem important to the people we're talking to. We want them to care about us. We want them to be entertained. We want them to be stimulated. We want them to be attracted to us. We want to feel connected with them. And there's nothing in the world wrong with that because it's the way that human beings communicate and feel like we're one. Uh, I guess you could say that one thing 
wrong with it is that it keeps us on edge. I mean, it's if you watch the coverage last night, it was just about the continual hooking of the nervous system, playing the fires over and over again, the people looting, the screaming heads of the commentators. I got exhausted at some point. The good thing about being on edge is that at the edge, there's a lot of power. There's a lot of clarity. You get to see something that you were unable or unwilling to see previously. So drama is a great human art form, and we don't want to just project it out and say, oh, the media is sensationalizing. We all do. And uh, the media is us in the collective domain. So, okay, let's look at then the rioters themselves. As I said, the week after Freddie Gray's death was followed by peaceful protests. People came from all over. And again, there is a story here that is being told that needs to be told. And that is that there is um, a systematic brutality uh, from the police and lack of respect from the police for particularly African-American men that is just more and more intolerable in a society that purports to base itself on freedom and equality. So what started with another yesterday started with another day of demonstration turned violent when actually it was a strange thing. They let the kids out of school, the high school, and they had shut down the mass communication, I'm sorry, the, the mass uh, transit system. So these high school kids were just sort of out in the streets. And there was an internet meeting. This is a downside of the internet. I mean, we often talk about how the internet is, you know, such a lower right in using the quadrants, a technological uh, evolutionary force for raising consciousness and for good. But Again, as, as we often say, one of the problems of the modern world is that pre-modern people can use modern technology. And, you know, there's nobody more pre-modern than a bunch of teenagers. <laughs> uh, so anyway, they had an internet meme uh, called The Purge, which is uh, based on this movie called The Purge, which is a story of a dystopian future. And, of course... Dystopian future movies is the mainstay of marketing to young adults. Is there any kind, other kind of future that is ever seen in movies and books? I don't know. But at any rate, in this dystopian future, a totalitarian government passes the 28th Amendment to the United States Constitution, where they have an annual 12-hour suspension of all police and emergency services. And so this is purported to be a socially helpful invitation to have a catharsis and, you know, commit crimes and get it out of your system. But it's also secretly, to the authorities, a way of controlling the population and the criminal element because for this 12 hours every year, they get to kill each other. So this is the meme that we're on the purge. And this begins the um, violence yesterday and it was interesting to watch the footage. You could see, even as it got more and more violent, again, it started with the teenagers, but it ended up with the real criminals. Uh, they, they were the ones who were out later at night actually doing the, the real uh, looting and, and setting fires. But you could see these packs of teenagers that were just running through a, like a dare or a thrill ride. They were holding their hands over their heads. It was you know, had a certain kind of festive quality to it, as these things do. And this is always, this is one of the things that I think Integral helps us see, is that any situation where there is some kind of de facto suspension of police or emergency services, it is an invitation for red to rush in. 
And these are the people who are just in it for the mayhem. They just want to take what they can get, have whatever fun. They take joy in destruction. And it is uh, what we saw last night. So the criticism of the authorities, that is the mayor and the police chief, is that they waited too long to come in and shut it down. And that's a, you know, possibly a, a legitimate criticism. Her thinking, we're talking the mayor of Baltimore, this is Stephanie Rawlings-Blake, and she's a 45-year-old, I would guess, uh, African-American woman, and she, you know, was cautious, especially after what we saw in Missouri a year ago, last August, in the Ferguson case, where there were similar riots, and the Ferguson police force, which was 90% white, set out in these armored cars with snipers and gas masks and tear gas. And it was really shocking to the country that we saw this military response in one of our major cities. And she didn't want to do that. And she also noted that the protesters, particularly in the early stages, uh, before 8 o'clock, it was still mostly the teenagers, mostly the kids. So this drives the right crazy. And we heard tons of criticism on Fox News and from right-wing pundits about what was she doing? Uh, was she deliberately letting the demonstrators set things on fire because she believes in their cause and she too wants to scare America into accepting their agenda? Or was she just being too politically correct? Why would she wait till 8 o'clock at night to have a press conference? Why wait even later to call in the National Guard and then keep them out in the perimeter? It's a good question, but it's, it's a little bit like the criticism that Obama faces when he doesn't rush in for instance, to bring a military response to ISIS or holds back in these conflicts in the Middle East and Syria and so forth. It literally scares people on the right. You got the troops, you got the guns, you got the force. How can you not go in and stop things? I'm thinking that when I look at what happened last night, where there was one cop who was hurt and put in the hospital, no other casualties. There were 15 fires. There were a bunch of car fires, uh, a lot of, you know, theatrics. I'm not sure it was a terrible outcome considering the possible other outcomes of rushing in too soon. So, I'm actually giving her uh, a little bit of a pass. I'm also noticing that for some reason I get attracted to the conservative media. I watched them all, but I got stuck on one of my new favorites. At least uh, I don't necessarily agree with her much, but I'm always interested in how she's handling things. And this is Megyn Kelly on The Kelly Files on Fox News. And she was covering it, of course, that was the lead story in all of, in fact, it was just basically a running story on CNN and, and, um, and Fox, particularly MSNBC too. But she had her young reporter, young guy, Leland Vitter, and he was on the scene and he was talking about the devastation and the senselessness and the fires and, uh, you know, doing his typical uh, media thing. And she asked him, she said, are you able to interact with any of these protesters? Have you actually spoken to any of them? And he answered, we've spoken to a few of them. Mostly what comes out is a long string of words that aren't fit for television. A lot of anger. It's not exactly clear what they're angry about when they're looting stores and these kinds of things. But this is what we're seeing. And she says, 
well, who's that man in front of the camera over there? He's yelling. Can you interview him? And Leland pauses. You can tell he doesn't really want to approach this guy and interview him, but he does. He goes up to the guy and he asks him, he says, tell me why you're out here and what you're angry about. And the guy answers by saying, the people need to be heard. And Leland says, what do they need to be heard about? And he says, oppression. Leland says, by who? The man answers, by the system, by everything. And then Leland asks him, but when you see what's happening to your city, the looting, the fire trucks, is it worth it in terms of getting the message out? Is this what the violence is all about? And the man answers, and this is one of the demonstrators, you know, he's jumping up and down and he, you know, was sh yeah, shouting. He was one of the lead guys. He said, the violence is definitely not worth it, but we want to be heard. The police don't respect us. And this is an interesting phenomena because respect is a really important part of the developmental schema. In fact, in Integral, we talk about each of the stages of development move from on one side, the pendulum kind of swings. On one side, a, a meme teaches us something about being an individual. The next stage teaches us something about being part of a collective. And then back to being an individual and the collective. And so we see that the first stage of development, which we call archaic or infrared, is about an individual saying, I am, I exist. And then we move into the tribal stage, which is more communal. And then we move back to the red warrior stage, where the message is, I am powerful. I need to be reckoned with. I need to be seen and noticed. And this is where a lot of Black men, black people in general, or the actually to, to even a bigger set, the underclass in general needs to be seen as powerful, needs to be seen as respected and, and, to, and to be reckoned with. And then we move into the traditional, and that's again more communal, more religious, and so forth. And then we move to the orange stage, which is more individual again. And at this stage, the, the slogan of the orange stage is, I am somebody. I am special. I am unique. So again, the first hot meme or the first individual meme, uh, infrared, I am. The second is red, I am powerful. And the third is, I am somebody. And I always remember back when Jesse Jackson was running from president, God, I don't remember when it was, maybe the 80s or the 90s, when he would go around and do these big uh, rallies for young black men particularly, when he would do the old fundamentalist Christian call and response, and he would call out, I am somebody. And they would shout back, I am somebody. And this is part of just moving into that orange stage of development that is really arrested in a lot of particularly young black men. So it's a culmination of decades of this kind of disrespect. And it was interesting that at the end of this interview, Leland Vitter was actually kind of convinced. He said, after the interview, he went back to Kelly and he said, these people are angry at the police for how they've been treated for years. This is the culmination, you can tell, of a lot of anger, not just about this one event, but about a number of events that they feel have perpetrated incredible injustices upon this community for all of these years. And I thought that was an interesting change in real time in the tone of his report. And this is Fox News. This is the show that conservatives are watching all over America. And I, I like that. I like that he got finally to feel into the cause and the motivation 
And that's what I like, again, about her show. Uh, she's challenging to us liberals because she has a reflexive anti-leftist bias. And also she's mean to Obama, and I don't like that. But she does keep coming back to questioning it and trying to uh, penetrate a little deeper. And I like that about her. I think she's actually moving the ball. So I wanted to uh, point out that report. Also, you see something uh, in this Baltimore situation that we're seeing more and more. And I think it's really, really helpful and healthy. And that is you're seeing African-American conservatives. And they're talking like conservatives have always talked throughout history. It's about law and order. It's about being good. Uh, I, I think of the, the police commissioner last night, Anthony Batts. I wrote down a quote. He, he was uh, being interviewed and he said, I am extremely disappointed in what has happened in this beautiful city tonight. I'm disappointed in the fact that the damage has been done to these communities. I'm disappointed that we cannot be more responsible and that our community is an embarrassment nationwide. Uh, and then Charles Payne, who is a new commentator on Fox News, an African-American man, and he was talking about how Obama gets it all wrong when he sympathizes with the people who are persecuted. And of course, Obama does both, but... Never mind. This is what Payne is sort of positioning himself against the black president. And he says, you've got to admonish people, period, particularly when they look like you and they are doing something wrong. You, call, you can't always make them the victim. The looters can't always be the victim and they can't always be justified. And then he went on with what I thought was a terrific example. And this is, again, Charles Payne. Uh, from Fox News. He said, look at Steve Jobs, for example. He founded one of the most successful companies, the most successful company, actually, in the history of the world, Apple Computer. And yet he was the guy with the chip on his shoulder. He had been adopted. He had been rejected. He was angry. But this anger can be redirected. It can be used like a nuclear reactor. You can use it for a weapon or you can use it for power. And we want these young men to take the same energy that they're using out in the streets and put it into becoming an engineer. Take this energy and show the world that you can start a business. Take the same anger and animosity and use it for something positive. And this is really the antidote for out of control, violent, red warrior energy. Red has to be civilized by Amber. The warrior has to be civilized by the fundamentalist. It's no good to take them up to orange. It's no good, certainly no good to take them up to green. We see this unholy relationship between green permissiveness and red aggressiveness. That is, um, you know, it's what the, the right was accusing the mayor of doing. And I'm not sure she was. She called these guys thugs and idiots. And, you know, she, she had a good uh, traditionalist streak herself. Another thing I wanted to point out is that there is a real red underbelly to the police force in our country. I think system-wide, uh, but I think particularly in these African-American neighborhoods uh, where there's so much crime. I guess it probably makes sense. But we have to keep in mind that in a civilized society, the government has a monopoly on violence. That means in addition to the military, the one place where you can have socially sanctioned violence and bullying is in the police force. And I've had a few interactions with the police. I'm sure many of us have, mostly being stopped for traffic violations or so forth. And I have to say, I'm 60 years old, and all of the 
interactions I've had with the police in my lifetime have been generally positive. But I will say there was this one time where I was driving home from work. This was a couple years ago. And I noticed as I was driving up my street that a police car had come up very fast behind me and was tailing me really close, really aggressively, almost bumper to bumper, three or four feet away. I was going relatively slow, but I was still shocked and, you know, frightened. And I turned in my driveway and he proceeded to pull up behind me and cross-blocked me with a police car. And he jumped out of his car. I got out of my car and, and he backed me up against my door, just like a bully does. And, you know, he was red-faced and staring at me and aggressive posture. And he started asking me questions like, who do you think you are? And that's a question that's hard to answer, <laughs> you know, even if you're not under pressure. Uh, and then where was I coming from? What was I doing? Who lived in this house with me? I was so stunned and frightened that I literally couldn't think straight. I remember I had this sort of calm self-observation consciousness where I was watching myself be unable to put words together and watching myself sputtering and shaking and trying to answer and trying not to, you know, uh, fall apart. Uh, people do not look to me for uh, in a crisis. <laughs> I, am, I am not the guy for the crisis situation. But, I, you know, I managed to sputter out my answers. And just as suddenly as he showed up, he turned, got in his car, and drove away. No, no ticket, no warning, no nothing. I actually still have no idea what I did. I probably, you know, drifted through a stop sign or something. But it was nothing compared to the you know, proportion of his response. And I just realized that, okay, that was a very small taste of what some people experience on a far more regular basis. And I think some of this is going to come with the territory. But we have to, and I think we are, I think these situations that we're seeing with Michael Brown and in New York and North Carolina and Florida and, and, and here in Baltimore, that we're going to see a shift in policing. I mean, there's always the, you know, policing like the mil military does draw people who have a healthy sense of red. They have a physicality. They have, they certainly can use aggression. I couldn't. I'm just, I mean, I, I got the red somewhere, but I mean, it, it, it's just dispositionally not going to work for me. I always wondered, even as a kid, I was always sort of afraid that there wouldn't be enough police officers because who would ever want to be one? Well, what I've realized that this is that there are people who do. And I always think of that great quote that's attributed to George Orwell, where he says, people sleep peaceably in their beds at night, only because rough men stand ready to do violence on their behalf. So there are going to be some rough men and women in the police force. But again, I predict that we're going to see a revolution. The idea that when you fall into the net of the police, that that is a punishment in and of itself. That is, you're going to be treated disrespectfully. You're going to be put with other dangerous people. Uh, I think our prison systems, prison rapes, the safety of prisoners, this is all coming into the fore. And also something that I think is really useful here and will, I think, change things dramatically is the cameras. We're already seeing that with everybody having a phone camera and and taking movies of these arrests, but also if there had been a working camera in that police van, we wouldn't have all these questions. If the policemen themselves wore cameras, we wouldn't be having these questions. And so the only people who are hurt by not having cameras are bad cops. The good cops should welcome them, and I think they do. And I think we're going to be seeing a continued pacification of, the, of policing by basically creating a witness 
situation where, you know, you do things when you don't think anybody's looking that you wouldn't do when you are, uh, when you do think that people are looking. And I, I, I think of a, an experiment that I read about a couple years ago where they, you know, they have in these lunchrooms in these businesses, they have boxes of candy and potato chips and cookies and whatever. And it's an honor system. And you put your money in this little cardboard box and it's not terribly secure, but everybody's supposed to be honest and it, it works because it's, a, it's an active business model. But the experiment showed that when there was a mirror in the lunchroom by the snack box, people were more honest than when there wasn't a mirror. Even the idea of being witnessed by yourself makes us sit up a little more straight. So I'm all for the cameras. Another thing I wanted to point out, another aspect of this, is just how good Obama was. I mean, I know I'm always singing this guy's praises, but I just, we only have 18 more months of him as president. And I just encourage everybody to appreciate this man. I mean, he got, he, he had his press conference yesterday and he condemned the rioters. He, he talked about them being a handful of, of the protesters. And he said, when individuals get crowbars and open doors to loot, they're not protesting. They're not making a statement. They're stealing. And he called the rioters criminals and thugs who tore up the place. He supported the police. He said that they have, are the ones who have to go in and do the dirty work of containing the problems that arise. He talked about how many local police forces need to be reformed. And he announced that there would be a Justice Department investigation into the death of Freddie Gray. And by the way, welcome to the Attorney Generalship, Loretta Lynch. You had a good first day, a challenging first day, but there will be an investigation. And he, he said, I think it's going to be important for organizations like the Fraternal Order of Police and other police unions to acknowledge that this is not good for the police. Just as there are corrupt politicians and businessmen, there are some police who aren't doing the right thing and that thoughtful police leaders shouldn't close ranks, but instead should work on constructive proposals to improve their practices. And then he talked about the protesters, the peaceful protesters, and how sad it was that, as he said, one burning building will be looped on television over and over and over again, which was true, and yet thousands of demonstrators did it the right way. And I think that's been lost in the discussion. He said, the overwhelming majority of the community in Baltimore has handled this appropriately, expressing real concern and outrage over the possibility that our laws were not applied evenly in the case of Mr. Gray and that accountability needs to exist. And then he talked about the root cause. And he says that everyone needs to feel that these kids are our kids and we think they're important and no kids should be living in violence or poverty. We as a country have to do some soul searching, he said, on issues at play in, quote, impoverished communities that have been stripped away of opportunity. And he pointed to drugs, a lack of fathers, and a lack of economic investment. He said at the end, if we're serious about solving the problem, further reaching of reforms and education and cr criminal justice should be enacted. And that's a pretty darn integral response. I mean, looking at the upside and downside of multiple perspectives here is basically a four-quadrant analysis of the situation. Again, he is my guy. All right. So I see we have a question here from um, Baltimore's violent protesters are right. Smashing police cars is a legitimate political strategy. It's crucial to see nonviolence as a tactic, not a philosophy. 
It, if it fails to win people over, it's a futile tactic. Well, I'll tell you this. I don't know if they're right, but I will say it works. There is something about a, a certain stage of any kind of protest where violence gets the attention of the masses of people. It's just as simple as that. And that's true. That was true in, in, in the 60s, with the riots of the 60s. As I said, we're far, far more violent, far more destructive. But it really ushered in a culture in the United States of, of real integration. We had had legal integration. We had had integration in the laws, that is, the exteriors in the early 60s. And then we had Martin Luther King assassination, Kennedy assassination, we had the riots. And then we had real integration in the interiors where we started affirmative action. We started seeing African-Americans in higher positions on television, in uh, you know more movies and characters with more respect. And I think that, you know, of we always want the violence to be as, as minimal as possible, but it is a piece of the puzzle as things move forward. And I think, as, as we can see, the amount of violence that is, I don't want to say required, but again, less violence gets more and more attention as we move forward. And another thing I would say about nonviolent protests is that nonviolent protest would work and does work in a civilized society where it doesn't work in a, a police state, for instance. And I've talked about this before. You would never see a nonviolent protest in North Korea. They'd get hauled away. Or in Saddam Hussein's Iraq. So uh, nonviolent protests would work. And that's what we had seen in Baltimore but it, and let's face it, it didn't get near the attention that it did when it started going violent last night. That's when the cameras and the armies of reporters and, uh, moved in. You know the author Arundhati Roy, Jeff? She's an Indian. Yes, I do. I, yeah. I, I know of her. She's a social activist, too. And she's talked about this, actually, about the complex nature of uh, armed resistance and nonviolence. She said that nonviolence as a political approach is really, you know, it's associated and romanticized with India's past as a tactic, uh, but it's a tactic that requires a middle class, you know, just like you were saying. She yeah. argued that nonviolence on the part of the oppressed is only effective when there's a middle class to witness it, to be made aware of the injustice uh, through its performance and lean on their own power to sway economic and social tides. When a middle class isn't watching, is distracted, or otherwise uninvested in the struggles of the poor, nonviolence is useless and may actually even be deadly. So yeah, that's yeah. just another way of saying what you put, you yeah. know, what you said. Yeah, you have to do it in a society that has a conscience. Yeah. So I like to look at it. Yeah, the way forward, I was going to mention that, you know, the dirty little secret is that violence does work and that it, it sort of has a certain intelligence when you're working with people who are at the red stage of development. And there has to be, as we look at the nature of evolving through these stages, there has to be a healthy stage established for a new stage to come online. And so, particularly young African-Americans and young African-American men, and, and again, the, this is not necessarily racial, it just seems to be the center of gravity of the African-American community, uh, but it's also true of the underclass in white communities, uh, that a healthy red is had through sports, through entertainment, through rap music, is a healthy expression of red. It's very violent. 
It's very, it can be. It's very, look at me, which is, again, red. Red is about notice me, take me seriously. It's about bling. It's unfortunately about misogyny towards women oftentimes, although it's very interesting to see women rappers using the same thing. So we think of rap music, and also video games, violent video games, as debasing the society where actually they're providing a healthy red outlet for people who are moving through that stage of development. It's a way of getting through red without hurting anybody. And we see that the more rap music and the more violent video games, violent movies and television and the coarsening of our society and all of the things that conservatives fret about, while all of that has increased, the amount of violence and crime has decreased. And so that's another way of thinking about that. All right. Corey is saying rap can be read, but it isn't necessarily. That's absolutely true. Corey, if you know of any integral rap, let us know. We'll take a listen. Maybe the Kendrick Lamar you were playing before we got on here, huh? Could be. It's yeah, good stuff. I know. he's. Um, I have to uh, read the lyrics, but I haven't. I can't understand them. It's like... You know, I'm trying to watch these shows on television, even like Outlander, and I can't understand a word they're saying. I have to have closed captions. Do they have closed captions for rap? I don't think so, but you can definitely find the lyrics online. Corey said that conscious hip-hop includes uh, Black Alicious, Kendrick Lamar, Saul Williams. How's the the Occupy Naropa going? Well, there, there's, a, there's a bunch of people in tents on the, the campus. They have a list of demands, and they have people designated to talk to you about the, their grievances because, you know, apparently with this kind of a occupation, um, if the people that are occupying the injustice have to consistently explain it over and over again, it re-traumatizes them. Right. So they have these people appointed to tell you about it. And I haven't actually talked to them, so unfortunately I can't tell you too much about it. They just have uh, apparently evidence that Naropa, I don't know if they've said Naropa is racist outright, but at the very least they're not doing what they can to support diversity. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, um, you know, Naropa is the Buddhist university here in, in, in Boulder. And You know, Boulder's one of the most exquisitely politically correct towns in the country, and and Naropa is the most exquisitely sensitive university in the world. But there is uh, an Occupy Naropa movement, which is taking action against, and yeah, according to their uh, manifesto, Brett, it is an action against white supremacy and institutionalized racism at Naropa. And they have uh, camped out in tents on the lawn at Naropa. And their list of demands is, let me see here, includes uh, improving Naropa's hiring practices, providing training around racism and other issues for employees, funding student-led discussions on race, creating a visible multicultural center, implementing ethnic studies curriculum, and other things. And... Yeah, I would say that that is a green action. It's, a, it's you know, kind of an extreme green action. But there's a piece of the truth to it. And that is that the long game of overcoming racism isn't just a matter of how people are treated by the police or how the laws are written. Uh, the laws are written fine at this point. The police were working on big time. But the final piece happens in our hearts and minds as we really, really look into what it is to be like another person. The uh, long-held, venerable, spiritual practice of exchanging oneself for other. And that is an important part of it. But in the meantime... It's not so much the race that is the issue. It's the stage of development. And, you know, we have people at all races who are 
at the Red Warrior stage. They are thin-skinned, they are volatile, they have low impulse control, they can be dangerous. And we have people at all races at uh, every stage, including integral. And so it's not so much race, it's the level of development that really determines how people act. And I think then playing the longest game, you know, what's ultimately going to overcome racism on this planet is the increased mongrelization of the human race, where we just we just can't help ourselves. We just keep breeding with each other. You know, at this point, almost everybody has every race DNA in them. And that will just continue with, you know, our intermarrying and bi, tri, and multiracial babies. And I think that is a characteristic of this sacred world to come. Okay, and Janai asks, is it merely coincidence that this is the 50th year anniversary of the Voting Rights Act? Interesting. Are we witnessing something that is a recurring theme throughout history or what? Well, I think it's recurring, but it, recur it recurs at a higher octave. It, it recurs at a higher level. As I said, those altitudes of development or the stages of development tend to tick-tock back between the stages that where we sort of learn more about ourselves, and then we learn more about how to be with each other, and then we're more agentic, and then we're more communal, and then we're more individual, and then we're more communal. It's like the pendulum moves. So yeah, things do recur. But while the pendulum's going back and forth, the whole clock is moving forward. And I think we can take some comfort in that. All right, I was going to get into a couple of questions, but I see that we're close to our time. So maybe we'll save them to next week, Brett. Sounds good. But keep them coming, folks. You can um, respond to me, uh, questions, comments at jeff at dailyevolver.com. Uh, go to the website, dailyevolver.com. There's that orange button for the speak pipe. There's the at Integral Life which is the home of the Daily Evolver, there is a very robust comment section with the Daily Evolver, and I encourage you to check that out and become a part of the conversation there as well. Okay, well, let's pray for Baltimore and pray for... I always love the bumper sticker on the back of my friend Jennifer's car. She has a bumper sticker that says, God bless everyone, no exceptions. So that's what I'll leave us with tonight, that little prayer. Thank you so much, everybody. Jeff Salzman, signing off.